Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Today we're taking a look at the uh, uh, the, the St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And um, this is uh, the Gospel, literally, as the revelation of God. And, um, and so far, we've taken a look at the four Gospels, and you've taken a look at the book of Acts. And um, basically, the four Gospels introduce us to the Word made flesh, actually in our midst, in the midst of real time and real history. And, uh, and uh, that's what it is. The Gospel didn't take place in a vacuum. It didn't take place in a galaxy far, far away on the land of Maud and Todd. I was actually talking to somebody today after the 8.30 service who's taking a class over at Baruch College called the Jesus of History. Uh, you probably want to run the opposite direction. And so, um, but it was all about how this or that isn't really true. And uh, the truth is, is that what we're looking at is real history, and that's what the Gospels teach us. So, and then you have the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is like probably the most amazing um, first century account of the church. And so, uh, and so in, in the book of Acts, we're introduced to this guy named St. Paul. And so then St. Paul uh, writes the book of Revelation. He writes all of these epistles for us. And, um, and really what St. Paul does here is um, he introduces us to Jesus theologically. The uh, Epistle to the Romans is a systematic breakdown of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us on our behalf. And so what I want to do today is I want to begin by um, basically, one, taking a look at St. Paul. Who is he? That's the privilege I have as teaching Romans, the first epistle. And then second, I want to take us through uh, briefly four questions that the uh, book of Romans answers. And then three, if there's time, I'm going to basically just briefly walk us through um, why we read the Old Testament through the lens of Romans and reading the Old Testament through the lens of Romans. Because the book of Romans articulates to us that Christianity doesn't subvert Judaism, nor does it take it over, but rather that the book of Romans illustrates and articulates and conveys for us that Christianity, Jesus, is actually the fulfillment of Judaism is the fulfillment of Judaism, and that actually Christianity isn't a new religion, but it is, it is the fulfillment of a very, very old one, where God has been faithful to his promises. So, and if you notice, I've handed out everybody basically an outline of St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. Um, there are a number of them, um, but this one's really good, and I broke it down into basically just simply sentences for you. So, and the other thing is, is that this is an immense challenge, and it's an immense challenge because the last time I taught in the book of Romans here, it was an eight-week course, and so, and I'm supposed to do it here in 30 minutes. So, but we're going to do our best. So first, who is St. Paul? Who is the Apostle Paul? Well, first of all, no one is neutral about St. Paul at all. People love him or they hate him. There's nobody who's like, eh, St. Paul's basically good. In scholarship, people either love him or hate him. Someone see, some see him as the greatest theologian of all time. 
Others see him as an anti-feminist, anti-Semitic, anti-everything, kind of grumpy old man. Some see him as the strong yet gentle poet who wrote the great biblical poem about love in 1 Corinthians. Others see him as some sort of theological bully trying to conform everybody to his image of Jesus. Some see him as a person who is really into table fellowship and making sure everybody minds their P's and Q's around the table. But the fact is, is that many of our misconceptions about Paul are not based at all on sound historical and scriptural judgments. The primary source of St. Paul and his life is in the book of Acts. And then what he wrote about himself in his epistles. And then a few of the early church fathers, they wrote a few hagiographies about him and articulate who he is. But essentially who St. Paul was, was St. Paul was a man of two worlds. Paul lived in two distinctly different worlds. His thought and his ministry were influenced, though, by both of these worlds. One was Jewish and one was Greek. Greek and Roman are two words, though, that we use interchangeably when we're talking about this. Uh, The Romans ruled the world, Pax Romana, but uh, it was um, everything functioned in Greek. And so it's kind of like living in Los Angeles, you know what I mean? All the street signs and everything are in Spanish. You probably speak Spanish at home. But uh, the functioning world is the United States. And uh, this is how it was in the Roman world. Everything functioned under Rome, but you probably spoke Greek. And everything functioned in Greek. But this is... Uh, and, 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 uh, but, so you have Paul, and he's living in two worlds. And Paul was a man of his time, and he was a man of his place. He was a hot-headed Mediterranean who was quick to defend the gospel he had received. Paul was born in a town called Tarsus in Cilicia, what is now modern-day Turkey. And it was a Greek-speaking part of the Roman Empire. And his parents came from Galilee, according to the ancient writings of St. Jerome. And so and he was also known by his Jewish name as Saul of Tarsus. However, he took on Paul after his conversion. And he was considered in that time to be a Hellenized Jew. Now, what do I mean by that? These were Jews who lived in the diaspora. These were Jews who lived in the Greek-speaking world. And so he was a Hellenized Jew. And he could trace, if you read his epistles, especially Philippians, he traces his line back. He knew his line. He knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And to the law, he belonged to the Pharisaical party. And his letters reveal that he knew Greek and he understood Greek thought. You see him in the book of Acts at the, uh, the Agio Paris, where he, uh, he speaks to Greek philosophers. So he was immensely immersed in this world. And he was a Roman citizen. This is also very significant, which implies that his father also was a Roman citizen. So St. Paul was a man who lived in two worlds. The Jewish world, where he knew his lineage and his tradition, And also the Roman world, or the Hellenized world, where he was a citizen of the empire. Now, as a Pharisee, living in the diaspora, Paul was one of a group of Jews, and especially as a Pharisee, who policed the boundaries of religion. What could easily happen in the Greek-speaking world at the time was that influences could enter in. 
You know what I mean? And influences began to enter into Judaism. And so the Pharisees outside in the diaspora, what they made sure was is that the religion of Judaism was faithful to the law of Moses. And Paul was an extremely, extremely passionate Jew. And he often uses the word zeal to describe himself. And he grew up in Jerusalem, or he went to Jerusalem where he was educated at the feet of Galamiel, who was one of the great Pharisees of the day. And some hold that he was a rabbi, which means that he also would have had to have been married. But, um, but, uh, but on his way, so he received, and if you read about the book of Acts, Saul was actually held the jackets of the men who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And then he had received papers to root out and kill followers of the way or Christians in Damascus. And it was on this way that he encountered Jesus and had a real encounter with Jesus, so much so that Jesus knocked him off his high horse. Knocked him off his high horse, and uh, he was blinded and later converted. And uh, this conversion was so powerful, he eventually went back to the apostles, and they were all a little nervous, because the equivalent of Saul becoming a Christian would be like as if Adolf Hitler all of a sudden became Jewish. Like, everybody would be, like, a little nervous about this. Not a little, a whole heck of a lot, this guy coming around. And now he is teaching about how Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah. And so he goes away to Arabia for three years to really process this whole thing. And so he comes back, and he comes back and he starts to teach what's called the Scandalon of the Gospel. And this really... um, this really uh, infiltrates especially the book of Romans, the Scandalon of the Gospel, and 1 Corinthians. So, and what's the scandal of the Gospel? Well, it's this unthinkable idea that the Messiah could have suffered upon a cross and died. This, this would have been a huge problem and would have, fo- would have caused everybody um, to uh, question, because in, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. Jesus is a, uh, a scandal to the Greeks because uh, he takes on flesh, and he's a scandal to the Jews because he seems to lighten up the law, which couldn't be further from the truth. But Jews were called to be a light to the nations, and the story of a crucified Messiah definitely had the opposite effect. It could actually cause Judaism to be ridiculed in the Greek world. And so, Paul, so let me say a little bit more about his conversion. On the way to Damascus, he experienced a vision of Christ, which changed his entire life. It changed him from a persecutor to a supporter of Christianity. John Calvin actually describes his conversion as this. St. Paul, uh, God took a wolf who was Saul of Tarsus and transformed him into a lamb as Paul, who became a herald of the great shepherd. Christ himself ordered St. Paul not to go back to the Jews, but to witness this message to the Gentiles. And at the time, most of the Christians were followers. They were still considered part of Judaism. So in reality, Paul switched from simply being a Pharisee of the Jews to being a Christ follower of the Jews. And Paul reports in Galatians that he immediately went to Arabia. This was his seminary education for three years to process what happened to him before he went on the way. But following his visit, he set out for Antioch 
on a mission trip through his home area, which would have been Syria and that part of Turkey that's all at war right now. You know what I mean? And there he went and he converted the Gentiles. This helped make Christianity a universal religion. Not just a religion of Judaism, but a religion for Jews and Gentiles. And while we're all here sitting, why we are all sitting here in Anderson Hall today. And towards the end of uh, Paul's life, Paul was imprisoned in several places, but he was imprisoned in Jerusalem, but then sent to Caesarea, and then he was eventually sentenced and uh, was put in prison in Rome, where he arrived in 60 AD. And he spent, uh, he spent uh, two years there under house arrest. And uh, Eusebius, uh, who was an early church father, reports that St. Paul was killed, was beheaded um, under uh, Roman Emperor Nero in either AD 64 or 67. And this is a very powerful point because a lot of people want to try and make the Gospels and the book of Acts much, much later uh, than they were written. But like Paul, it's clearly said that uh, he was executed under Roman, uh, it's, it's agreed during the Neurotian persecution, which would have been in the 60s. And in the book of Acts, we're record, it's recorded that he goes to prison. But like, if the book of Acts is essentially his, his message, his gospel, or about his life, his death would be an important event to record, and that's not in the book of Acts. So this begins to date things much, much earlier. So, we come to St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. Let me say a few words about St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans is probably, like Paul himself, one of the most influential and controversial books in the entire Bible. It's divided the church, and it's brought the church together. And many have referred to it as the gospel according to St. Paul. And it functions as a catechism, if you will, of what the Christian faith is all about. It's a short, systematic theology because it answers four questions. The first question the book of Romans answers is, one, how as a sinner am I saved? That's what it answers, the first thing. You know, a lot of people don't like to use the language of sinner and all of that. But the truth is, is that what Paul lays out in the first four chapters is humanity's like grave problem before a holy God. And not just Jew, and, but not just Greek or Gentile, but both Jew and Greek. Our problem before God is massive. Massive. It should cause you to tremble. This is what he says. He doesn't describe humanity in the book of Romans as basically having a bad hair day, but appealing back to the prophets, he says, no one is good, no, not one. All stand condemned. And why? Because God in his amazingness has revealed himself to the world through creation and has revealed himself to the Jews through the law, and we have all chosen to reject that and follow ourselves. And so the first thing that Paul answers in this question is, one, how am I saved before God? The second thing that he says is, how does this relate? How does this salvation relate to God? The second thing he says is, how does this relate to Christ? And the fourth thing he says is that how does the salvation, Romans, work itself out in the way we treat each other as humans? 
This is a really big thing. Archbishop, or um, Bishop Andrew Mingreen, in his great commentary called The History of the Christian Church, he says this. He says, The Epistle to Romans has a peculiar way been able to supply the impulses for the renewal of Christianity. And when the church has slipped away from the gospel, a deep study of Romans has often been the means by which the lost has been recovered. And the truth is, is that this is the case. Whenever the church has gone off the rails, and it goes off the rails all the time. You know, it did it in Augustine's day with the Pelagians. Who are the Pelagians? These are the people who taught that, man, basically God doesn't make no junk. And Jesus is your example. And if you do your part, God will do his. That's total heresy. They taught free will. It's total heresy. Nobody believed that in the church. And uh, they taught this. And it was St. Augustine peeling back, appealing back to the book of Romans to bring the church back to its truth. The same thing had happened with the innovations of the medieval Roman Catholic with the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And who, what did Luther, what did Calvin, what did Thomas Kremner appeal to? As Augustinians, they appealed back to the book of Romans to bring us back to the truth of God. The gospel, that it is a one-way street between you and God, and he does absolutely, positively everything for you when it comes to salvation. Now go serve your neighbor freely. And the same is true with John Wesley. He was converted on a boat. On a boat, there he was coming back from the Americas, from Georgia, where he had uh, been a missionary to the Indians. And, uh, and basically what happened to John Wesley, it's really funny, he fell in love with a wonderful woman in Savannah who was engaged to be married to the, to, um, she was the daughter of the mayor of Savannah, and she was already engaged to a person, but he fell madly in love with her and thought, well, since I'm the clergyman, you should date me. And then, uh, and when she like resisted his advances, well, what did he do? That next Sunday, he didn't give her or her fiance say communion and so he was uh, so he was uh, sent back to England and there on a boat on a boat and the waves were high he was there on a boat with a bunch of Moravians and everybody's sick and they think they're going to die except for these Moravians who are in the hull of a ship and uh, basically John Wesley like is like what's going on because they're down there just praying and uh, they were like well you know, God's, we're in God's hands, and he's going to sort it out. And when they got back to London, he was like, what is the difference with you people? And they were like, well, why don't you come to this place called Aldersgate in London? And on May 24th, he went to Aldersgate, where he heard the book of Romans being read. And he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And he later wrote, I felt I did trust. And he's already a clergyman. Here's the thing. And he says, I felt I did trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Let me read to you what William Tyndall said about the book of Romans. He was one of the great English reporters. He says, No person can verily read it too often or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the profound and eternal truths that are found within it are so great a treasure of spiritual things that lieth hid therein. Martin Luther said this about the book of Romans. 
rightly the chief part of the New Testament and the clearest gospel of all that it would be well worth memorizing so that a Christian could recite it by rote, word for word. And St. Augustine, let me tell you about him and his conversion. Very powerful. He belonged for a long time to what was called the sect called the Machaeans. And the Machaeans, they believed that basically in dualism, that there's an equal power that's good to an equal power that's bad. And like basically there's a divine chess game going on. And he had struggled with vices. Vices all the time. And, you know, and one of those vices was a sexual vice. And he had children and things like that before his conversion. And he used to always say, Lord, we'll start tomorrow. But anyway, he went to, uh, he went to, that's my plan all the time with a diet. Definitely tomorrow. But anyway, um, but uh, he went to uh, Milan. And there in a garden of a friend, he heard a young child sing, Tole lege, tole lege, which means take and read. Take and read. And there in the garden was an open Bible that was open to Romans chapter 13. And Augustine read, Clothe yourself with Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This, of course, blew his mind, and where he was later converted and baptized by Ambrose of Milan. And then Augustine would later become the Bishop of Hippo, which is in Algeria today, or parts of Tunisia. And he would become the dominant church theologian between basically St. Paul and Martin Luther. So the book of Romans, and this is the interesting thing. All the time people want to talk to us about what's innovative. And people will approach the church and always thinking about innovation and new and creative cool things we can do. And what we learn is is that Christianity moves forward not by being innovative and creative because we'll never be cooler than the culture around us. That's just the truth. I mean, especially here in New York. You cannot outcool New York ever. And so the way the church actually moves forward, the way the church grows is by going back to the beginnings, back to the book of Romans. And that's what we do. And I want to encourage everybody to go back and take this outline that I've written and read Mark and inwardly digest it Because it's not about innovation, it's ultimately about reformation. And the church is always reforming itself. So, St. Paul, what's the nice things that people have said about the book of Romans? What they said, finally, let me kind of walk through, what are some of the things in the overview of the book of Romans? And then if there's time, we might talk a little bit about the Old Testament. Gosh, probably not. So anyway, we'll go from there. So, but first... How as a sinner I am saved? How as a sinner am I saved? Well, Paul writes this first in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So how is a sinner saved before God? He's saved by faith in the work of Jesus. And what Paul does, for the righteous shall live by faith, what he's done is is he's taken the work and the writings of the prophets. You know, when you see the work of the prophets, they give you all of these things you should do. And then it's boiled down into Haggai or Malachi, love justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And then here, in this prophet, it is the just shall live by faith. It's boiled down to this moment. And Paul wants to make the point, especially in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, 
that Paul is not inventing a new religion. And especially in Romans 4 and 5, Paul actually appeals to the Torah that he's not making a new religion because this was the accusation. Oh, Christianity is a new religion. And what he's saying is no. And in the book of Romans chapter 4, Paul appeals to Abraham. See, in traditional Judaism, if you come to our Jewish Christian Bible study even today, the Jewish rabbi will always appeal to Moses and to the Torah. And they see themselves as walking through the wilderness even to this day. And Paul says, that's a huge mistake. You have completely misread the entire Bible. He upends it. And this is why he's oftentimes accused of anti-Semitism. But it's not true. He's telling the truth. He's like, hey, everybody, there was a covenant made by God before, between Abraham 500 years before Moses. 500 years. And Moses believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. And so God is the one doing the work. And he appeals back to Romans or Genesis chapter 16 and 24. And he walks through this about the sacrifice where Abraham lays out and they make a covenant together. And you remember, Abraham cuts all of these animals in half. This is a Suceran covenant where... um, So basically the way it worked in Mideastern kingship is that um, when two kings got together to sign a treaty, the little one and the greater one, the greater one would cut all the animals in half, and then the little one would walk, the lesser king would walk through those animals. And the idea would be whatever happened, this covenant is broken, whatever happened to these animals will happen to the lesser king. And if you remember in that... The animals are cut and God himself walks through those animals. And Abraham is deeply asleep. And God promises Abraham that he'll make him a great nation. And it says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. And Paul argues in Romans 4 that that word belief is not just for Abraham, but for all of us that believe that Christ, God in Christ will save us. That is credited to us. So Abraham now is the father of all who believe. And it's so funny because if you read the book of, Mo, if you read the book of Exodus 16 through 24, this is the Mosaic law, the covenant, the law that God establishes with Moses. The people immediately break it. And Moses appeals to God not on the basis of his relationship with God, but appeals to God based on the covenant that he's established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And see, this is Paul's argument here, the whole argument, that is not about what you do that defines you, but what God has done for you that defines you, and that this is a principle not just made up in Christianity. Do not believe the nonsense that the Old Testament is like testimony A, and the New Testament is God's plan B. Like, oh, they couldn't get it together, let me send nice Jesus. Like, that is not it. It is, this has been the beginning, the plan since the beginning. And Jesus has come by his person and by his work to fulfill the law. As the prophets say, out of the stump of Jesse shall come forth a shoot. And you talk to any real Jew who understands what that means, it is completely offensive because it is from one man that will come faithful Israel. One man will come a faithful temple. One man will come a new Moses, a new David, a new absolutely positively everything. And so this is Paul's argument. We are not making up a new religion. We are teaching you the fulfillment of it. 
And then he begins to work through. And so now I've just basically quickly articulated how it relates to God, how it relates to Jesus, and how it relates to Jesus is specifically you and I in our baptisms. And he says, You who are buried in a death like his shall be raised in a resurrection like his. And this is the work of baptism. And so, and indeed, we are pulled up. And he says, so then, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Why? Because when you're baptized, you're dead. Like, that's what we're doing. Like, it's about, not about living to die in Christianity. It's now about dying to ultimately, finally, truly live. And when you're buried with Jesus in a baptism like his, then you're raised in a resurrection like His. This happens right now. And so in you, there are two people working. There's the justified, and there's the saint. In the Latin, it's called semel justus et peccator. And St. Paul struggles with this, and so do you, because so much by what you see, oftentimes says, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I'm not really living it out. And Paul in Romans 7 writes, man, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I should. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage of sin and death? And so, and he goes then in 8.1, thanks be to God, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And... This is powerful. And so you go by what you hear. And what you heard at Jesus' baptism was, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And He went to the cross and died. And in your baptism, you're buried in a death like His. And when you come up, you hear the same words over you. This is my well-beloved Son. This is my well-beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. You can't see it. It must be heard. And this is faith. This is faith. Well, then in Romans 9 and through the rest of it, he talks about the relationship between the Gentiles and Israel. And the highlight there is that the relationship between God and all of the world, Jew and Gentile, has always been the same. But you who are Gentiles don't get puffed up because you didn't graft yourself onto this vine. God grafted you onto the vine. And he's grafted you onto the vine to bear fruit. And that is the point. And so we don't get puffed up, but in humility, we say, thanks be to God. The great theologian, Bo Geertz, he wrote this amazing book called Through My Own Eyes, which are small novellas of the gospel stories told from other perspectives. And there's one of the Syrophoenician woman. Do you remember that story? The story of the Syrophoenician woman. She comes to Jesus and she's like, my daughter's sick. And he's like, hey, it's not right for me to give uh, food to the dogs while the children have not eaten yet. Oh, so terrible. And she looks at him and she says, yes, master, but even the dogs eat the scraps from their master's table. And he's like, my God, I've not seen such faith. Ago, your daughter is well. And Bo Geertz writes this story from St. Peter's perspective. And uh, St. Peter's like, oh my God, I can't believe Jesus actually said that. And then when he sends her off, he makes the point, he says, indeed, all of the promises have been given to our people first. And this is true, and this is Paul's argument. The gifts came to the Jews first. But this wasn't so that they would stand on their own two feet and say how awesome they were, but that they might lead the world in repentance and in humility on their knees, walking in a righteousness that is not their own, the righteousness that believes God and is credited uh, the, the, the faith that believes God and is credited to them as righteous. And that's what we do, is grafted into this great vine. We don't stand up on our two feet and point to the world and 
say, look how ridiculous you are. We get on our knees and we point and direct people to Jesus, the author and the fulfiller of our faith. And then at the end of Romans 11, he says, he gives this amazing doxology. Let me just read it for you and then I'll wrap up. He says this, because we could keep going, but anyway. He says, he, says, he says this, he's got this amazing, so he's just finished, and this is another thing you need to know about reading the book of Romans. People confuse it all the time. The front part of Romans, the front part of all of St. Paul's epistles are theological. He lays out to you what he has accomplished, what Jesus has accomplished for you in his person and work, and then in view of these mercies, how you live your life for your neighbor. It's not, but what happens is, is that people muddle these two words, law and gospel, and you get gospel. And it's like, man, if you want to make the baby Jesus happy, you better start getting your act together. You know, you're a sinner, and now you've been saved by grace. Get your act together. Learn how to dance so you can stay in the dance. That is nonsense. Yet that's what's pitched all the time. You know, I was having a meeting yesterday with somebody, um, and they were like, well, I'm sure, you know, you believe in the goodness of humanity. I was like, absolutely not. I do not. I have like a real low anthropology. It is terrible. And I was like, and that's why I'm a Christian, because I need Jesus. You know, if I could basically get this together on my own, I, I wouldn't go to church. But I can't. I need a Savior. And so Paul talks about this salvation in theology. And at the end of Romans 11, he says this. He says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how immeasurable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. The gospel leaves us basically speechless. And then he says in Romans chapter 12, Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you might want to know what it's there for. It's hearkening you back to everything he just said. Therefore, I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, In view of God's many mercies, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual worship. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? So, in view of God's many mercies, whenever you're feeling down and out, look back to all that Christ has accomplished for you. And in view of God's many mercies there, Let that propel you forward as a living sacrifice. Now there's a difference between a living sacrifice and an atoning sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice does something for God. But God has done all the sacrifices we need. And so we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. What does this mean? We offer ourselves up in service of our neighbor. We go out and we witness to our neighbor. We love our neighbor, not because we have to, but now because in view of all those many mercies, what God has done for us, we can. I don't know if you remember, about 12 years ago, there was a big cleanup New York City project. I've used this as an illustration several times. Um, And you guys have had me now long enough where um, you'll start hearing my illustrations over and over again. But... uh, um, 
That was supposed to be really funny. But anyway, um, uh, the point is, is that there were, all these art, there were all these actors and stuff that were talking about, get out and clean New York. And then they had Gwyneth Paltrow at the very end, and she's there painting a wall. And you know she wasn't painting that wall very long. And, so, but, uh, um, and she was like, and besides, it'll make you feel better. You know, what the gospel does as a living sacrifice is it finally gets us outside of ourselves. It's no longer about us feeling better. It's no longer about any of that. It's about, man, this amazing love, this amazing sacrifice that God has laid his life down for you and I who were once his enemies to make us children of God. And nothing can strip us of that so that we might go forward and serve our neighbors freely. Not because it makes us feel better, but because we want to. We love to. And it is what it is to no longer be conformed to the world. So in conclusion, the book of Romans, read, mark, and inwardly digest. For it is the powder keg that can cause an explosion, not only in this church, but the church around the world. And Lord knows we need to come back to it. Lord knows we need to come back to it. But we'll begin it here. And we won't begin with innovation. But we'll begin with the book of Romans and the gospel and reformation. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. Or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.